Mr. Lawler, lawyer, I actually uh, kind of touched on this, but I'm going to confirm that it is disconcerting as a speaker to watch a portion of your message disappear into the previous speaker's message. <laughs> so, brethren, you're going to get a double dose of cane this afternoon. Brethren, when you hear the term generosity, what does it mean to you? If you go into dictionary.com or if you're old school, pull a Webster's Dictionary off the shelf, uh, you'll read that it's defined as readiness or liberality of giving. Now these tools can define the word, but does the definition tell us its meaning? For that, we must drill down and give thought to the context in which the, the word is used. You know, charity giving has become fashionable generosity. Everywhere one looks, there is a cause, there is a purpose, there is some emergency, there is something going on that somebody insists requires everybody else to be generously giving to. For that, there are websites. Giving is very, uh, very easy. Uh, now there's uh, GoFundMe. I think everybody's familiar with that. Uh, another one called Classy. I hadn't heard of that. Uh, Give Well and Just Giving. It was really interesting to me to go on the App Store and just look, do a search on giving websites. I, they just went on page after page. And you know, for a while, there will be a popular outpouring of interest to any given cause, but then giving fatigue kicks in and uh, attention starts dying down until the next cause comes along. I think that the ones who have the real key on this giving and encouraging people to be uh, generous are uh, celebrity fundraisers. They tend to limit their actions and their requests to very specific time frames, and they get and oftentimes do deserve the attention and the credit for supporting various things like medical services and uh, even hospital facilities and that sort of thing. But that still leaves us with our earlier question, how does one define generosity? What is the true meaning of generosity, of charity, of giving? You know, generosity, I think, is a hallmark of the Church of God. One of my very, very first experiences with this subject from church members was the first feast I ever attended. And I'm showing my age here, but my very first feast was in Big Sandy, Texas, in this place called Piney Woods. I'd never heard of, never heard of Big Sandy for that fact. And so I try to get information about what the feast is like, what it means to go down to this place and, and camp. 
And uh, I really couldn't get information. People couldn't describe to me in terms that were real meaningful what it was I was going to, to experience. And so here I go down to Big Sandy. I go to Piney Woods, and I am surrounded by 10,000 campers. I've never been around so many people in one place at one time in my life. And so it is incredible. Keep in mind, I was just a young man, had very little money. Uh, the timing of my coming into the church was uh, such, and frankly, my income was not very good. And so I think I went down to the feast with maybe $100. I just didn't have any money. And literally, it was the generosity of a uh, another church member. I started attending church in Amarillo, Texas. And so uh, I, uh, there was a, uh, some other single guys there that uh, had a really nice camping outfit. So they invited me to stay with them and find that because I'd never camped before. And works for me, great, I joined them and went down. The generosity of the church hit me the first few minutes I was down there meeting people, running into people, absolute strangers, to my knowledge I'd never met in my life, inviting me into their tents, taking mercy on this kid, this young man, who clearly did not know what he was getting into. And I went the entire feast from campsite to campsite, eating, drinking, having a really good time. He came back to that old joke, if you go home hungry or sober, it's your fault. And it was. And I remember leaving, and when I got home, I still had something like 60 bucks left over from the feast. Whole feast cost me 40 bucks. And it was because of the generosity. That was my first opportunity to witness generosity being a hallmark of the church of God. It's a hallmark, brethren, because generosity is God's nature. It's God. God is a very generous being. He's generous with his people. He's giving us a calling and Christ at one point made it very clear that you've been called because it is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's uh, 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 Luke 12, 32. He's been generous in that he's going to give us eternal life. He is generous in that he gives us a huge family. I just told you about the feast, and that was a, a real eye-opener to understand that those people, again, absolute strangers until I got down there, are people who will I will join in the family of God. And as individuals, brethren, God is very uh, generous with us. I've been in church long enough that 
I have seen generations of church members develop and come along. And I remember that first feast I went down, I drove down an old red Ford pickup. I was just thankful it started. And that's what I drove. And I want to tell you, I probably had the newest vehicle in the place because God's people were not well healed at that point. They just weren't. Most camping, because that's all they could do. And so, but over the years, now in this congregation, I think uh, we've got people here that are fifth generation in the church of God. And I've watched these generations develop in sophistication, financial stability, education, and just personal maturity. That's God's gift and His generous gift. And brethren, we're not alone. God is generous to the world. God has given this world incredible variety and abundance. It just is staggering sometimes when you think about it. And even in ways that really you don't think about and consider maybe quite in these terms. For example, if uh, you go up here on 635 and 35 in that quadrant there, you will find a number of large warehouse type buildings that contain uh, different types of stone for countertops. I mean, they're huge. These buildings are huge. And you go inside them, and it's just row upon row upon row of these massive pieces of granite, quartz, sandstone, and on and on and on, onyx. And the variety is incredible, what you see there. God made that possible for man to quarry, to mine, to develop, and turn it into something quite literally household jewelry. Some of it is so beautiful. That's a gift. That is a gift that God has given to man. Varieties of people, varieties of races, varieties of cultures. Those are gifts also. Challenges. God gives mankind challenges because it's good for man. I think about that and we see a situation where God has created a body of law. Man calls it laws of science. But he's created a body of law that is stable, is absolutely consistent, and he's given man the opportunity and in fact the responsibility to find out how to use it and how to apply it. And man has done an incredible thing. You look around and you look at the technologies that we have in this world and it's really very, very impressive. That is a gift. We see in Psalms 25 too that it is the honor of kings to search out a matter. Tremendous gift that God has given us. And brethren, the bottom line on that 
is God has given man everything man needs to be successful. He hadn't used it well. Instead of sharing, serving, unfortunately, man's greed and the willingness to resort to violence to get his own way tends to be the motivations. Otherwise, there would be no such thing as famine. Don't think just because there's a drought in this part of X country that those people have to starve to death. They have to starve. They're starving to death and suffering because these people are too greedy and too angry and too controlling to understand their responsibility to share and make sure that disaster doesn't happen. And you know, even with that in mind, brethren, God is generous because he well understood right from the beginning the potential for abuse. And what did he do? He gave mankind Christ's sacrifice. My brother, in the holy days are coming upon us, as the announcement said, very quickly, quite literally, days away. Now, brethren, this is not an offertory. Please don't think it is, but it is a message about a principle related to giving. Deuteronomy 16, 16, it reads, and you know these verses, these two verses, very well, but I'm going to go over them both. Three times in a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord, your God, in a place which he shall choose, feast of unleavened bread, feast of weeks, and the feast of tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty. Verse 17, every man shall give as he is able according to the blessings your God has given you. Verse 17 opens up a subject that in my opinion is massive because it's related to how we value our blessings and to the degree our spiritual relationships. And it spotlights our motivations and purposes for giving offerings. Now with respect to giving offerings, the act of giving, brethren, is a very private, personal, and very intimate act because it is a matter strictly between you and God and your gift and your offering is strictly up to you. And I'm here to tell you, it's not the amount that matters. Now, we tend to focus on the amounts as being the measure of value. But let's look closer at that. Christ had a comment on that very thing. In Luke 7, pardon me, Luke 11. In Luke 11, starting in verse 37, and as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. And when the Pharisee saw it, what did he see? Now this is interesting, brethren. We see in these verses something really interesting take place. Verse 38, and when the Pharisee saw it, 
he marveled that he, Christ of course, had not first washed before dinner. Now brethren, the Pharisee wasn't thinking about Christ washing his hands because they were dirty and then sitting down to eat. It was a whole washing ritual that Christ just dispensed with. Not going there, not participating. When the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, make the outside of the cup and the dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather, give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manners of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. And these you ought to have done without leaving the other undone. So, brethren, you think that dinner was uh, went off without a hitch after that comment? I expect the Pharisee was thinking, oh no, what did I get into? Oh dear, can I take that invitation back? Well, we'll see. Christ was saying that giving is good, but the reasons why you give are a problem. Christ was very aware of motivations. In Mark 7, there were some other comments that Christ made with regard to motivation in giving and offerings. Mark 7, verse 8, For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of man, the washing of pitchers and cups. Here the washing thing comes up again. And many other such things that you do. He said to them, All too well you reject, though, the commandment of God that you keep your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. This was a very serious commandment that God laid out for mankind. Verse 11, But you say, If a man says to his father and mother, Whatever profit you may have received from me, you know, guys, it's Corbin, and I'm sorry, I just can't spend it on you. That is Corbin being a gift to God. Verse 12, then you no longer let him do anything for his father and his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down in many other things you do in a similar way. Now, when an item was Corbin, just as a little background, I know most of you understand it, that it was, in fact, a dedicated, high-level uh, gift that one uh, made to uh, the temple. And in the culture of the day, it was a very serious thing. I mean, you didn't have to do it. wasn't required. But if you said this gift is dedicated to the temple, it was something that society at large expected would go to the temple regardless of whatever else intervened. It was not a casual matter, and it carried very serious societal implications. 
You know, brethren, Christ looked at the motive in these two examples. Didn't seem to care much about the amounts involved. He was concerned about the motives. You know, interesting events took place involving Paul and a trip to Jerusalem that he was going to be making. We see in um, 1 Corinthians 16, and he was going to be going through Corinth, and he had sent a, uh, a message ahead, and he was saying, starting in verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches in Galatia, so you must do also. Paul's being pretty directive here uh, in these comments, but let's look at them. On the first day of the week, let each of you lay aside something for uh, gifts, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But it is fitting that I go also, that they will go with me. And now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through. So here, Paul was being very upfront. Guys, I'm coming. I want you to put your gifts, gather them, have them ready, because we're moving on through to Jerusalem. Apparently, it kind of upset some folks. And so we see that uh, uh, Paul had to address it somewhat in 2 Corinthians, in the 8th chapter, verses 1 through 11, he used that time to kind of uh, stir up and uh, encourage the Corinthians. But then in verse 12, he explained, for if there was a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased while you're a burden, but by equality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, and that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. In verse 15, for it is written, for he who gathers much and hath nothing left over, he who gathered little had no lack. Continuing in chapter 9, verse 1, Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast to you in Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and that your zeal stirred up the majority. Yet I had sent the letter to the brethren, the letter referred to back to what we read earlier in 1 Corinthians, the letter to the brethren, lest our boasting of you should have been in vain in that respect and be sure that you're ready. Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, that we should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go with you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift 
which you had previously promised and that it might be ready as a matter of generosity and not of grudging obligation. Paul was saying here, you had indicated earlier that you wanted to give. I was coming through and I wasn't being directive in the sense that I was demanding a gift. I was misunderstood there. I was simply putting you on notice that we were coming and the offerings that you had for Jerusalem would be taken at that time and I was just giving you a, a heads up. And he was very clear that I was not trying, in my words, trying to get blood out of a turnip. You were expected in your offerings to Jerusalem to give what you could, what you were able to do, and that was what was expected. So Paul, in fact, was saying that here that the Corinthians' act of giving would, it was important that they give what they could, not to the point of pain, but that they give what they could comfortably and, and um, think that through. So, brethren, what does a person want to convey with a gift? What is a person trying to say with a gift? Now, every gift, every act of generosity will have a different motive behind it. Of course it will. Uh, I know that we have examples for, and I will not go into detail. I'll just refer to Ananias and Sapphira. You will remember in Acts that this couple out in the open was going to give a piece of land and going to be very generous, probably made it kind of an open um, uh, offering for everybody to, to see their, uh, their act. But in secret, in fact, they had held back part of the very gift that they said that they were giving uh, to the church. Well, brethren, that didn't turn out well. We know their story. And Peter, who addressed it in, in uh, Acts 5, said that uh, uh, while they had their offering in their control, they should have used that control wisely and not set themselves up to lie about their offering. And so here, Peter did not care about the amount. He was looking at the motivation and the thought behind Ananias and Sapphira's gift. Now, brethren, we're getting to Cain. We see in Genesis 4, verse 1, read through very quickly, and Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his uh, brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering 
to the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect to Abel and to his offering. In verse 5, but Cain and to his offering, he had no respect. Brethren, is brought out by Mr. Lawler. Here was a situation, and we don't know for sure. I, I absolutely agree that there uh, undoubtedly was a system of some type of uh, offering uh, that uh, these men would have understood, or they wouldn't have given an offering in this way. Um, and uh, But it did not, we have no information that it was particularly, that an offering was particularly limited to, you know, an offering of, of uh, meat or animal sacrifice or that type of thing. In fact, uh, we see uh, in later in uh, the Old Testament where the sacrifices are clearly laid out that uh, in offerings and sacrifices, that uh, uh, grain offerings, in fact, are included in what is acceptable. Uh, so uh, I don't think it was a uh, situation at all where God just didn't want to eat his vegetables and he did not uh, particularly care for uh, something that Cain brought in from the garden. What he did focus on, and we see it reflected in Cain's later attitude. Verse 5, but Cain, an offering he had no respect, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why are you why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, shall you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin lies at the door. I find that verse interesting for this reason. Just in the language transition, you really expect that verse to read, if you do well, shall you not be accepted? And if you don't do well, you shall, won't you be rejected? Didn't go that direction though. Instead, if you do well, shall you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin lies at the door. God's comment to Cain took a totally different level of recognition and concern for Cain and the attitude that he was showing God when God undoubtedly tried to work with him and even correct him. Cain didn't care for it. Principle here is that Cain's gift, unfortunately, carried a message of disrespect. Brethren, The question that we asked earlier is 
what does a person want to convey with the gift they're giving? What are they trying to say? The fact of it is, every gift that a person gives, he carries a message. And that could not be more true than when the gift or the offering is cold, hard cash. Our relationship with money is deep, it's complex, and it's a whole different level of intimacy. We should not underestimate the symbolism attached to money. Money is not just a means to purchase things. It carries the weight of ambition, commitment, insecurity, security. George Bernard Shaw made an interesting observation. He understood the symbolism. He said the universal regard for money is one hopeful fact in our civilization, the one sound spot in our social conscious. Money is the most important thing in the world. Well, I disagree with that somewhat. It represents health, strength, honor, generosity, and beauty as conspicuously as the want of money represents illness, weakness, disgrace, meanness, and ugliness. So what does the symbolism of money have to do with Holy Day offerings? Christ understood the symbolism. Let's turn to Mark, Mark 12. Mark 12, starting in verse 41, a really interesting episode occurred. Mark 12, verse 41. It reads, Now Jesus sat opposite uh, the treasury and saw how the people put money in the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. You kind of wonder how this actually worked when uh, people gave offerings to the treasury at the time. It must have been a real public affair where people could actually see what you gave. I, I just find that interesting. To our mindset now, we're also cloistered in, the, in our use of money. We, don't, uh, we want everything to be real private. But apparently at this time, giving an offering was kind of just done out in the open. I find it interesting. Verse 42, Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a uh, quadrant. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given much to the treasury. For they put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in all she had her whole livelihood. Mark 12 suggests, loudly suggests, that generosity is not defined by the act of giving, 
but by the motivation behind the gift. So, brethren, what about you and I? What we've gone over is interesting, but so what? Isaiah described the time in which we live, time of the last days, or what we think would approximate the last days, the time in which we find ourselves perhaps as locusts. And we run a danger in that we can, or rather there, that term almost is to a large degree even an understatement. Because brethren, we could poll everyone in here in everybody's life is so full that at times you feel like you don't have time to think things through. Let me ask you, is this familiar? Comes the a holy day. You're about to leave the house and you re- re- remember, oh, today's a holy day. There's going to be an offering. Well, where are those envelopes? I, 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 well, oh, never mind, never mind. I'll just get a blank envelope at church and then you come along and you get out and you're driving along and you're, you're thinking about it and again, stuff rolling in your thoughts. Wow, I, how much of an offering am I going to give this time? And Well, I, I, I don't know. What, what did we give last time? You know, brethren, that's certainly familiar to me because that is part of my thought processes on occasion. The example that Cain and Abel left us indicates that thought needs to be given, proper thought needs to be given to the subject of giving, generosity, and an offering. God gave us guidelines. Animal grain sacrifices foreshadow, of course, Christ's sacrifice. Cain did not think it through. God has a purpose. Cain's thoughts didn't go that direction. The principle we can learn from Cain is don't expect your offering to mean anything to God if it means nothing to you. Brethren, each spring we're reminded that the holy days are here. There will be an offering taken up. And I'd like to encourage you and me, this is my reminder to myself, to take a few minutes, turn off the noise, put the cell phone in the glove compartment for just a few minutes and just talk with your family and think about the Holy Day offerings and to use your offering as a tool to examine, assess, and evaluate your relationship with God.